Lord God of heaven and earth, creator of our world and everything in it, yet as close as our own breath, holy is your name. In you we live and move and have our being. We are your children, the work of your hands. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move among us as we worship, opening our eyes to your presence, opening our ears to your word. Receive the worship of our hearts and minds and bodies. May it be a pleasing offering to you. We pray in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose death and resurrection we find life. Amen. I call this sermon, if you want to call it that, Teaching the Gospel in Post-Christian English. I do have a burden on my heart when it comes to what I'm going to talk about today. I think we need to know that we are living in what is called post-Christendom age, which to me is very scary. We think about the last 2,000 years and the effect that Christianity has had on the world in that there are countries that call themselves Christian and lived according to a Christian standard. And I don't think we can say that anymore. I don't think there's one country in the world who would call themselves a Christian country. Canada is a secular country with Christians in it. The U.S. is a secular country with Christians in it. We see that in what happens with our laws. And it's not a Christian nation. We know in Canada, they have decided to allow the RU486 pill, which has been called a human pesticide, which is just devastating when you think about what we as a country and what we as people allow to happen. So how does the church share the gospel today? Because I think the church is needing to share the gospel with you. all these people who call themselves Christians and don't know what it is that they are identifying with. We see that the church is changing. There's a growth of what we would call the evangelical Christians in places like China and Africa, Latin America. But one of the things that marks that church is persecution. And that persecution is embraced by the church and the church grows. When we look at what's happening here in the West, we see there is a stagnation and a decline in the church. In North America and Europe, one of the things that marks them is an affluence, and that affluence is being embraced by the church. And we see how that affects it. There's a loss of attendance. There's a chasing after false doctrine, and we see apathy and indifference in the church itself. At the same time that that's happening, there's also a rise of an anti-church sentiment. There's a thing called new atheism, which is incredibly scary. And we see how the media influences our society in the way it attacks what we believe. Do you know how we are being portrayed as Christians today? I have a small piece I'm going to read from a book called On Guard, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision by William Lane Craig. Secularists are bent on eliminating religion from the public square. The so-called new atheists, represented by people like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and Christopher Hitchens, are even more aggressive. They want to exterminate religious belief entirely. Today's society has already become post-Christian, Belief in a sort of generic God is still the norm, but belief in Jesus Christ is now politically incorrect. How many films coming out of Hollywood portray Christians in a positive way? How many times do we instead find Christians portrayed as shallow, bigoted, villainous hypocrites? What is the public perception of a Bible-believing Christian in our culture today? The perception of Christians by the cultural elite in American society today is that we are goofy curiosities, to be gawked at by normal people. But we must be aware that Christians are also portrayed dangerous. We mustn't be allowed positions of influence in society. And maybe that's why Christians are often being caricatured as needing to be penned up. 
That's his his view on how these Christians are being seen today. What do we read in the scripture? Today, I'm talking from Acts 17. And Acts 17 states in a very interesting point in Acts. Paul and Silas had just escaped from prison. They had just picked up this young guy named Timothy, who had been tra- who started traveling with him. And I must think to myself, what an experience this must have been for young Timothy. Coming along with Paul and Silas and watching them share, watching them be arrested, and seeing how God moved in freeing them from that prison. And now they come into this part of the missionary journey where they're going to go to three different cities, sharing the gospel with the people. And as they end this second missionary journey, they will go to Corinth, where they will start the Corinthian church. So Acts 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord in heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor does he serve by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grow for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So I start with a question, what does sharing the gospel look like? When we read through this chapter, in chapter 17, there is something that strikes me about it. Paul went to the synagogue in each town that he entered. As he came to Thessalonica, or to Berea, or to Athens, the first thing he did is he would find the synagogue and he would go there. Sharing the gospel, then, in, in this chapter, says you find people who profess the name of God. That's not to say that they are Christians or that they even believe what we believe, but they profess the same God that we believe. Even Jesus went to the Jews first before the Gentile ministry. We read about that in Acts 13, 46. And so Paul was following the example of God. But who are these people that profess God? Are we supposed to raid other churches? And I don't believe that is part of the, the gospel message. Instead, it is people who make claims like, I am spiritual, but I'm not religious. In Romans 3, verses 19 to 25, it says that apart from the law of righteousness of God, it has been manifest, justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Jesus Christ. These people who say they're spiritual but not religious are missing the point. Christianity is not about being religious. Religion is what we do. And as we read the Bible, one of the things that's clear is that Christianity is not about doing, it's about God working. That we are Christians, that we believe, that we share the gospel, but we we do not do religion. And sometimes what we do in church to help us remember things, whether that is memorizing scripture or going through something with you, 
communion, or whatever it is that our church uses to help us worship, that thing should not be what we worship. People say we do not need church to worship God. In Hebrews 10, we read, do not give up meeting together. A church can be argued not to be a building. You don't need a building to worship God, but you do need need people. You need something, a group of people, to worship God. You can worship on your own. We think about the the eunuch that Peter talked to who went off to Egypt by himself. He didn't have a group of people, but he had the scripture that he could take with him and learn about God. And I imagine that when he got to where he was going, he shared that with people, and God created a church around that opportunity. We do need church to worship God. And you hear this, this, this statement by many people, the church is filled with hypocrites. There are too many hypocrites. In Mark 2, verse 17, we read, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not call, come to call the righteous, but for sinners. Finally, people who profess God, it strikes me that it occurs three times in this chapter. People who study scripture, scholars, people who are far more intelligent than I, say part of the Jewish writing uh, experience was if you had something important to say, you would repeat yourself. And if you repeated yourself three times, it was really important. Uh, If you think about in Revelation, where the, the people are bowing down to God, saying, holy, holy, holy. They're not just saying God is holy. They're not saying God is very holy. They're saying God is the most holy thing. This is something... That is so important we need to pay attention. And here in Acts, the writer says that Paul went to the synagogues. Paul sought out people who called themselves Christians. And it happens again when we look at verses 2, 11, and 17. And the writer says that Paul reasoned with the people from Scripture. It's repeated three times. It's very important that this the writer wanted us to pay attention to it. To reason for Scripture is to give evidence for Christ. The New Testament would not have been colonized at this time. They would the Old Testament. They would have been sharing with the Jews. And they would have taken the Old Testament and they would have said, look at what is said in the Old Testament. Look at how it points to who Christ is. Look at all the things that happened. If we read the scriptures and we look at our recent history, there is a correlation with reasoning in scripture for what we believe. Reasoning from scripture clarifies your belief. And when people are in error, to take them to Scripture and to share that with them helps them to see where the error is. Scripture also helps to guide in the truth. These verses here in, in Acts 17 are often used for the apologist movement. What does it mean to be an apologetic Christian? It doesn't mean that we go around saying sorry all the time. What it means is that we have reasoning behind what we believe. It means that we have studied and are accurately handling the word of God. This young man, Timothy, that was traveling with Paul's father, was told by Paul in 2 Timothy, Be diligent and present yourself according to approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. It's important, though, when we look at how people share the gospel, that we read a few other scriptures. When you share scripture, when you're sharing the gospel, when you're being apologetic and giving reason for your faith, that we are loving, not arrogant or rude. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, 7 says, Love does not brag and is not arrogant and does not act unbecoming. It is not for us to bash people over the head. Sharing our faith, sharing the truth, 
is not about winning the argument. We give a reasoned argument for what we believe, but we do it in love. Again, in 2 Timothy, Paul says, not to be quarrelsome. Chapter 2, verse 24 to 26, he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Because we are representing to those people the Christ that we were telling them about. And once we've reasoned with them, we share the gospel. In uh, chapter 17, verse 3, verse 11 and 18, Paul follows his reasoning with sharing the gospel. And sharing the gospel is not the same as Paul Jennings. The gospel presents a hope and a purpose for our lives. There's a hollowness in people's lives that are looking for purpose. People are looking for hope. Living in the, in, in the world without hope must be soul-crushing. I can't imagine doing that. And so there is this need in every person, uh, a key, if you will, to, to, to open that lock. And that is what the gospel gives us. It presents hope and a purpose for our lives. Sharing the gospel is the natural conclusion to our reasoning. In Romans 10, verse 13 to 14, it says, How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? They need to hear about Christ before they can believe in him. We need to share the reasoning and then share the gospel. Two very different things. Not everybody is an evangelist, but we need to trust that we will be given the words. Even in one-on-one situation, when you have a chance to talk to one person, Luke 21 says, I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. God will give you the words. I have had opportunity, and it's amazing how when you talk, God will present things to you. He will say, okay, he just told this to you. You need to work on that. That wasn't me. It wasn't a gift to, to discern. It was just God saying, this needs to be talked about. The other thing about sharing the gospel is you need to keep it simple. Nearly every time the gospel is shown in the New Testament, two things can be observed. It is done in less than 10 verses, and it's always the last part of the discussion. The whole rest of the, of the gospel message is explaining, is the apologetic, it's the reasoning for, and then the gospel is shared. And it's a very short piece, and it's at the end, because you leave them thinking, you leave them wanting more, and you leave them wanting to come back. And even if you never see them again, if you're camping with them and they're gone, there's a seed planted, and then we'll chase after that if the spirit is working on the earth. We need to encourage the pursuit of noble mindedness. When we come to Acts 17, verse 10 to 15, and we read about the Bereans, we see that they were willing to examine the proofs of the truth. They studied the truth constantly, and they searched the scriptures to keep their minds from error. To spend time in the scriptures. In this pursuit of noble-mindedness, it's talked about in Hebrews 4, verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So reading scripture doesn't only give you the ability to reason with the people that you want to share the gospel, but reading the scripture helps to hone you as a person, to understand what you believe. Because when you know what you believe, when it's attacked, you can say, this is what I believe. When you're asked about what you believe, you can say, I know what I believe. Scripture says this, this is what I believe. It's a lot harder to be taken away from your path. To pursue noble-mindedness 
is to show a love in the Word of God. We look at Peter and his encounter with Christ. And he was talking to Peter in John 21, 15, and he says, When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon said to John, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, Feed my lambs. When we talk about sharing the gospel with people who profess to be Christians, there is something about feeding the lambs, about not going to the goats, about feeding the lambs and saying, you know, you need more of the scripture. You need to know more about what you believe. The goats will get their feet, and only God can make a goat into a lamb. But God says, feed my lambs. When we share the gospel in this age, our witness will have results. Sometimes the result can be good. The Spirit prepares the heart of unbelievers. And we read that in this chapter, in verses 4, 11, and 12, and the second part of verse 32. How the Spirit prepared those people to hear what was going to be said. And the gospel will also reach people who are not the intended target. We read, I believe it's in verse 4, about the Gentiles and prominent women in Thessalonica responding to the gospel. This was not Paul's intended target. When he went into the synagogue, he would have been surrounded by the men. He would have shared with the men, and he would have reasoned with the men. And you think that the Gentiles and prominent women are the ones who came and followed him, who responded to the gospel. In Athens, it talks about the Stoics and the philosophers following Paul. You're telling us something new. We're hearing something that doesn't align with our thought. Paul had a way of reasoning, going back to apologetics, to share, to help with these men grow. Our witness will have bad results, and there is a resistance to sharing the gospel. And we can read that in verses 5 and 6, 13 and 18 through 20. The hearts of some people will be hardened. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 says, They will be darkened in their understanding. The ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their hearts. When you share the gospel, you will come under attack. Part of who we are as Christians is that we say things and we do things and we live our lives in a way that grates on other people. But they don't like to see it and they want to change us to be like them. Luke 21, verses 16 to 17 says, You will be hated by all because of my name. That is what we hold as Christians is this hatred by the world. If you're a Christian and you're doing it because it's easier, I don't think you're doing it right. <laughs> One of the bad things about sharing the gospel is false accusation. We read about that in this chapter. Not only did the Jews in, in Thessalonica, or Thessalonica say things and present things to the law, lying about what they had said. It also happened when he went to Athens. The people in Athens made accusations, false accusations, against Paul. First Peter 3, verses 14 and 16 says, The thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, will be put to shame. Keep a good conscience. With good and bad comes indifference. Indifference is the greatest flaw in our current generation. Luke 10, verse 13 to 15 says, Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles had been performed in time and side which occurred to you, they would have repented a long time ago. Two cities that were indifferent to the message, even though they witnessed miracles. People say, I want to see a miracle. It doesn't mean anything to see a miracle if you're indifferent. Indifference is rampant in our church. 
But why has the church moved from meeting daily to moving to meeting once a week? I think there is an indifference in us as Christians. And Matthew 13, 22 says, The one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The indifference to the message allows evil to, to prosper. James 4, 4 says, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God has a plan, though. There's good news in all this. God has a plan. In verse 16, we look at what Paul is up to. We look to what's happening. And he follows the urging of the Spirit. One of the things about following the urging of the Spirit is we need to be able to discern. We need to be able to practice discernment. 1 Corinthians 14, 31-33 says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This is a great verse because a lot of times we feel spoken to um, and we don't know what to do with that. There needs to be a discernment to follow the urge of the Spirit. There needs to be an action, but there also needs to be an understanding of, is this from the Spirit? To test the Spirit, is this from the Spirit? But it also isn't, isn't useful to put it on the back burner because you're afraid of what might happen, to worry that God will not give his services in order to get this thing done. Paul followed the advice of the brethren in Thessalonica. He was being pursued, and they wanted to do all kinds of terrible things to him, and the brethren said, you need to get out. He followed the advice of the brethren. They resolved to secure his safety. But one of the things we know is he stayed there long enough to get a church going, to plant the seeds, to get a group. He stayed long enough for that to, to happen, but he didn't stay long enough to get killed. He got out. The spirit said, you need to move on. There's other places to go. You need to observe your, your environment. When we look again in verse 16, and he is in Athens, he sees this altar to the unknown God. And Paul used this as an opportunity to reason with those who would listen to him. And again, we're talking about reason. To talk to these people, to share with them what we believe, and then share the gospel. To take and talk to them in their environment. What are you doing? What can I use? What do you believe? What do you see? How does that relate to God? How does that relate to what I believe? And this is the gospel message that there is a hope. When you share the gospel and you see God moving, it is important to follow up with those people. We need to be aware of false belief. Hebrews 6, verse 48, said it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. For one who has drunk of the rain and falls out produces a crop, but it bears thorns and thistles and is worthless. It scares me because I believe in hell. God is life. God holds life. Once we're created, we exist forever. And the scariest thing about that is if you go to hell, God is keeping you alive, but he's not in your life that you live with an absence of God for eternity, and yet know that he is keeping you alive, scares me. Another thing about sharing the gospel is to recognize syncretism. And we have syncretism even in our church. People incorporate their old beliefs before they became Christians with their newfound faith. And oftentimes it's done because they are afraid of offending their family, they're afraid of offending their community, and they're afraid of turning away from their culture. And so instead of doing that, they say, well, I'm Christian and I believe this, but I want to bring this other stuff in and make it work. It's like taking molten steel 
and doesn't claim it and hoping that it still works as something structural. You've destroyed the steel, it's no longer structural. To, to synchronize two separate different two separate beliefs destroys the belief. And this happens very often in people who are new to the faith. Let us be reminded of what the gospel is. The gospel is the fact of Christ's resurrection. First Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 4 says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel is the realization and promise of God. John 1 is a fantastic place to go to look at this. Four quick points. The word became flesh. The word was God. In him was life and he dwelt among us. That our God, that our creator came down to be with us, that he lived among us, that he came to die for us, is something that no other religion can claim of their God. I'll close with another quote. This is from Oz Guinness, uh, a gentleman who works as a scientist in the UK, but has also become a Christian apologist. He has a book called Fool's Talk, Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion. And he says this, As Christians, are we ready for this new age? We who are followers of Jesus stand as witnesses to the truth and meaning of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as a central matter of our calling. We are spokespersons for our Lord, and advocacy is in our genes. Ours is the apologetic faith par excellence. But regardless of the new media, many of us have yet to rise to the challenge of a way of apologetics that is as profound as the good news that we announce, as deep as the human heart, as subtle as the human mind, as powerful and flexible as the range of people and issues that we meet every day in our extraordinary world in which everyone is now everywhere. Do we believe what we believe we believe?